Hello, welcome to Black British Girl Talks Crime, Finance, etc., a podcast about crime, finance, and other things. Each week, I will bring you a true crime story or financial advice or just about life as a black girl in British society. Follow along for true crime stories, tips on budgeting or home ownership, and general insight into current events and black British life. Hi, everyone. So, today, this is quite a lengthy episode, but I'm going to split it and put the time markers in the description box. I really wanted to do this crime for a long time in terms of covering on this channel so I'm going to do it today and this is about Ruth May McCoy. On April 22nd 1987 52-year-old Ruth May McCoy lived in Abler Homes. So Abler stood for Jane Adams Homes, Robert Brooks Homes, Loomis Courts and Grace Abbott Homes. It's an acronym and it was the Chicago Housing Authority CHA Public Housing Development that comprised as I've named the four separate public housing projects on the near west side of Chicago, Illinois. So, Ruth lived in Grace Abbott Homes, which was 15 stories high, and McCoy, she lived at the end of a corridor on the 11th floor of the building at 1440 West 13th Street. Most of the Abbott Homes have now been demolished, except for Brook Homes, which was renovated, but um, there's a new mixed income community that is there now. So for most of its existence, the Ablers held more than 17,000 residents, much less were named on the leases, and the housing projects were played by street gangs, drugs, and violent crimes, which you're going to hear about in this episode. So a bit more about Ruthie. She was known as Miss May when she lived at Grace Abbott Homes, and she was born in Hughes, Arkansas, one of eight children, and signs of mental illness began appearing when she was in her 20s. Relatives noted that she would talk to herself, she would burst with anger unexpectedly. She and her family were very religious. So her siblings attributed mainly spiritual explanations for what went wrong with her and her behavior and suggested that it could be solved by a prayer. So she didn't receive treatment for her mental illness. And she was 27 when Venita, her only child, was born at Cook County Hospital and the father didn't stick around for long. She now was taking medicine and she was okay when she was on it, but when she wasn't, she would talk to herself and sometimes swore at strangers on the street. And she was 251 pounds and 5 foot 11 inches in 1987. So when she did do this, retaliation was very unlikely. Um, She worked some menial jobs, so she was a laundromat attendant, a housekeeper, and her mental health problems mean that meant that she couldn't hold down a job for more than a month or two, and she spent most of her adult life on aid. She and Venita lived in Dearborn Homes, a Southside housing project, and this was during Venita's early life, and then they lived in cramped apartments on the south and west sides. Venita herself um, spent some time in Cook County Jail in 1983 after being convicted of aggravated battery, but Ruthie May took care of Venita's one-year-old while Venita was in jail. And when her basement apartment in Humboldt Park flooded, Ruthie May applied for emergency CHA housing. And she requested to be placed in Wentworth Gardens, which was on the south side and near her relatives. And she asked not to be placed in a high rise. But when she was offered an 11th floor unit in the Abbott Homes, she accepted. She didn't have much choice. So in May of 83, she moved into apartment 1109. And the first two years in Abbott Homes, Ruthie May shared with her two-bedroom apartment with Venita, who completed her jail sentence in 1983. Um, Venita's two young children, um, she had a second child in June 1983, I believe, and Venita's boyfriend, Louis Butler. 
but Ruthie May and Lewis did not see eye to eye and Benita left with her boyfriend and children in 1985. And police had to intervene several times when Ruthie May got into a scrape. As I said, she would sometimes shout and swear at other people. And she, Ruthie May, lived in constant fear of being mugged or burglarized because of the security issues in these buildings, which we'll come on to as well. She had her lock changed by the CHA at least twice, and she would often test residents and car locks to see if they were open for security. So it was sort of like if a car alarm went off, it was often because she was checking the car locks to check that people were keeping their goods secure. Um, her behavior was becoming more bizarre. Neighbors informed that Vanita, when she visited um, Abla, that um, Ruthie would be seen making snow angels. Um, in the snow near the building lying in the snow hot summer day she wore a winter coat and several pairs of pants and these are signs of mental illness as well so on august 19th sorry august 10th 1986 ruthie may arrived at the emergency room of rush presbyterian st luke's medical center with Venita's older child four-year-old bobby and the child had deep cuts on his face arms and legs and ruthie may said she'd been sitting for him and he'd fallen down the stairs he was she was acting because she was acting strangely in the emergency room and someone did you know she had pushed the child down the steps so dcfs was called and when ruthie may got winded this she went berserk she had to put, be put in restraints Venita came to pick up rob bobby and signed the commitment papers for ruthie may and she was taken to the nearby illinois state psychiatric institute and she was diagnosed there as a residu residual type schizophrenic. Um, Ruthie May was discharged on September 18th with a recommendation that she get follow-up care at the Mount Sinai Psychiatric Center. And she came to the center of her own accord on September 23rd. And the psychiatrist who interviewed her found indications of schizophrenia. And she was only at the seventh grade level in terms of academic aptitude on the placement test but she proved to be a black alert bright student and by april she was at the ninth grade level now she was turning over a new leaf you know neighbors were saying she was dressing decently appropriately she was often pleasant she lost weight she would gain the weight she was dressing acting more appropriately she left the project early most weekday mornings to go to school she seemed to be like of an older mother figure at the school and would look after some of the younger women who were there so if things were looking up and with the help of social security field representative and staff members at the Mount Sinai Psychiatric Center, um, she got approved to receive supplemental security income, which is SSI, federal aid for the physically and mentally disabled. So this raised her monthly income from $154 from gen this, what she'd been receiving from general assistance to $340. And the first check was sent in February 10th and because it was backdated it was huge and it was a check for $1,979 so Ruthie was going to use her income to get out of public housing she did buy a few things she bought a plain winter coat a few other clothes some inexpensive house household items and people in the projects noticed so which is a bit worrying because security's concerns maybe she could become a vulnerable victim of burglary but some people also, like a Baptist preacher from Fort Lauderdale, an Ojai minister and a New York minister wrote to ask for donations. So it was known that she had come into some money and her daughter Venita discouraged Ruthie from sending anything. So going to April 22nd, 1987, Ruthie called 911 at 8.45 that evening to report that someone in the apartment next door was coming through her bathroom cabinet. So you're going to see a transcript of this 911 call. 
And as you can see, the dispatcher doesn't really seem to take her assertion seriously. And due to that reason, they contact the police, but state it's a disturbance with a neighbor and not a break-in. So because of that, police did not arrive immediately. It took actually two more 911 calls between 8.50 and 9.04 p.m. from two neighbors talking about screaming and gunshots coming from an apartment for the police to arrive. Um, and they arrived at 9.10 p.m. And after the knocks went and answered, um, they asked the dispatcher to call Ruthie on her phone. And the officers listened to the phone ring from the apartment. Um, the officers told the dispatcher, we think someone might be in there holding someone. And they then went to the block away to the housing office to get a key given to them by the sorry key to Ruthie's apartment who was given to them by an attendant but they left the premises at 9 48 p.m when the key failed to work nobody answered across the hall the apartment next door was vacant the neighbors in the apartment down the hall said that they hadn't heard or seen anything um other neighbors on the floor said an elderly woman lived in 1109 and one of the officers said you know she always answers her door she's not answering so maybe she answered the wrong person or what and what is surprising is that they just left so despite the fact that that there was an elderly person they knew was inside the call came from that apartment and the phone was just ringing they still left um the following evening police got a call from deborah lasley who is an 11th floor neighbor of ruthie's and lasley said ruthie normally stopped by her apartment on her way out of the building every morning on her problem return in the afternoon but this day she hadn't stopped so Deborah said, you know, I haven't seen her and I saw police at the door the night before she was worried. So about six police officers and four or five CHA security guards arrived at the scene and their knocks again went unanswered. They called for her, went unanswered. And most of the police officers thought they ought to break down the door. But CHA security guards discouraged them saying that, you know, a tenant could sue the police if they broke in. So the police officers left. Then the next day, so at 1 p.m., her neighbor again alerted the project officer of her concerns. And at 1 p.m., a project office official arrived at Ruthie's door with a carpenter who drilled through the lock and they found Ruthie in the bedroom, lying on her side in a pool of blood. A hand over her chest, one shear on and one off. And she was shot four times in her left shoulder, left thigh, the right side of her abdomen and right upper arm. Witnesses claim they saw two men carrying Ruthie's 19-inch colour TV and rocking chair around the project in the early mornings after her death, and the medical examiner listed the cause of death as internal bleeding. So if Ruthie probably didn't die immediately, it's likely that the fourth shot was a fatal shot as it passed through her right upper arm, then entered her chest and severed the pulmonary and severed the pulmonary vein. The following three days, there was actually two more deaths in the Abler buildings. This is how dangerous this area was. Assailants used a stick and their hands and feet to beat to death a 40 year old man who lived in an Abler Row house and three days after that a 25 year old female resident of one Abbott High Rise ended an argument with a 20 year old resident of Rufi's building by plunging a knife into her chest. So on June 10th the Tribune ran a story about her murder and the fact that Ruby's killers had entered her apartment through the medicine cabinet. So what had happened is that they removed the cabinet in the other apartment, broke through Ruthie's cabinet and climbed through the wall into her apartment. And not many more stories were run on this murder. And perhaps people were desensitized to violence in this area or violence was normalized as I just described. But it does turn out that 
also intruders had been breaking into the apartments in the abbot's building through medicine cabinets for at least a year the cabinets were only secured by six nails so there was no obstacle to people they were also used an escape route from people from running from the police the lack of coverage could also be due to race um, nancy clay a white suburban white collar worker in a loop high-rise blaze in may um, you know, suggested that the 911 system had failed her. So therefore that received more coverage than Ruthie's case. And also police were reluctant to answer calls or break down the door because of where the calls came from. There were reports that there were hoax calls as well, but also is riddled with violence. So statistically at that time, residents of Abla are beaten, raped and murdered more than twice as often as they are citywide. And also the chief drug sellers at Abla were a group of black gangster disciples who call themselves the paymasters so very intimidating as well and what is strange is Ruthie's cabinet was never found nor the phone so that indicates that perhaps the people who killed Ruthie were in the apartment at the time the police arrived because remember they heard the phone ringing and the phone has never been found when they actually found Ruthie dead or they returned which is even more frightening so Two men, Ted Turner, who was 18 at the time, and John Honduras, who was 21 at the time, were charged with murder, home invasion, armed robbery, armed violence, and residential burglary. So police recovered a television and rocking chair that belonged to Ruthie in the home of one of the defendant's friends. The two men arrested by police were both residents of Abla, and Ted Turner was unemployed and he had no convictions, but had been out on a bond of, on a charge of unlawful use of a weapon. And on June 9th, police caught up with the other suspect they were seeking. It's even reported that he was 21 or 25, but his name was John Honduras. And he got a tip, they got a tip off. He was in the ninth floor apartment of an Abbott high rise block, a block from the one Ruthie lived in. And he was found hiding under a bed. He was also unemployed and he had previous convictions for robbery and possession of a stolen vehicle. So as I've described both of them, you can sort of tell that a lot of evidence is linking them to Ruthie's death. Also, um, Ted Turner was said to have been in lots of fights at school and he was a truant, he had discipline problems and he had a charge for unlawful use of a weapon at the time of his arrest. It was pending at the time of his arrest. So they were both being tried for Ruthie's case. Also, the prosecution found evidence that Turner um, made a statement to a friend that he had shot someone so it was seeking the death penalty against him they both claimed that they had nothing to do with the killing of Ruthie the lawyer for Turner basically said that he only claimed that he killed someone to impress a woman in the project that he was interested in and this was due to his immaturity and him being very stupid so they started to pit these two against each other so they said that john honduras sorry john honduras did carry ruthie's rocking chair to another apartment but they was helping out his friend turner and they basically claimed that anyone who was in apartment 1108 could have killed ruthie ruthie's brother willie identified the items as belonging to ruthie another thing that sort of counted for the two on trial was that neither tenant was on the lease but it was claimed that they did come from apartment 1108. The prosecution's case hinged on a statement made by Tim Brown who gave police this statement a day after Ruthie's body was found. Um, he told police he had been in apartment 1108 most of the day of the murder 
and you know these were the two that were responsible for it um he was a convicted drug peddler and he was serving a sentence for possession of a controlled substance with intent to deliver and he was on probation for a similar offense but he said during the trial that he made the statement with the abuse of the police that was standing there so this evidence is so weak now um, of by Tim Brown and so due to the lack of evidence the charges against the two men were dropped after two years of the trial and also it was found out afterwards that Tim Brown and Turner were housed in the same division of county jail for a period in 1987 and 88 but Hondras was not but it suggests that maybe there could have been some discussion and coercion for Tim to testify in Turner's favour. The charges were dropped and the last that was heard was that Vanita, Ruthie's daughter, was going to sue the police and the housing association, I believe, to state that they were responsible for the crime, but it's unknown whether there was a settlement was reached or whether they were found culpable of Ruthie's crime. You may also notice that Ruthie's crime has a legacy. So if you watch Candyman, there is a section of the film which was inspired in some parts which sounds so strange by Rufy's murder where they come through the bathroom cabinet and if you've noticed on TikTok there was recently something that went viral about an I think a New York resident who removed her medicine cabinet and found that there was a hole directly linking into the apartment next door so there is much more legacy actually I will link in the information bar from Ruthie's murder another one being an excellent book by an excellent book about the way in which we can change housing to make it more secure and less crime ridden very very interesting book about defensive space and how certain housing projects have since been modified to ensure that there's more natural surveillance and more community between neighbors to ensure and sort of protect neighbors from crime and residents from crime as well. So it's really, really interesting. And in some ways it's sort of built a legacy that we're trying to, or that people have tried to prevent this from happening again. So it's almost like her death has not been in vain. However, I would like to quote the following sources that I used for this episode. So that was Reddit, Wikipedia, and ChicagoReadio.com, which is an excellent article, and I will link that below as well. Get your fix every week by subscribing to Black British Girl Talks wherever you get your podcasts. Any pictures or further information concerning each episode will be on Instagram. Follow me on Instagram at Black British Girl Talks. And as always, if you have any questions, DM on Instagram. Until next time, goodbye.